the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome once again to the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour. We gather like this at the new AM 990 and FM 101.5, the word in Orlando. We get together every weekend. Uh, Alan Dempsey is our engineer. Very, very capable. And Andrew Herdliska is the producer. And in this first segment, Mark David Hall joins us. Uh, He is a professor in the William Penn Honors Program at George Fox University, just outside of Portland, Oregon. His new book is out, Did America Have a Christian Founding? And, uh, Mark, I'm glad we can hook up, and I'm eager to dive into this topic with you. Thanks so much for having me on your show, Pat. Why, uh, Why was it important to write this book? Well, I think that far too many people will answer the question, did America have a Christian founding, with the resounding no. They make claims like most of America's founders were deists, they created a godless constitution, they desired the strict separation between church and state, and these claims are just simply false. And if it was just a matter of historical record, it would be important to set the record straight. But I think in some of these areas, there's real-life consequences for law and public policy, particularly when we get into um, questions regarding the separation of church and state. Mark, you had a talk that you delivered in 2010. Did America have a Christian founding? Uh, It struck such a chord with people. Uh, Why do you think that happened? You know, I think a lot of regular people out there, Christians, um, conservatives, sort of know that these myths about America's founders are false, and yet scholar after scholar, popular author after popular author says the exact opposite. Again, America's founders are theists, they created a godless constitution, they wanted a strict separation of church and state, and so I'm making, in my talk, I make arguments that, um, to, to the contrary, that most of America's founders, as far as we can tell, were Orthodox Christians, that they were informed by the Christian principles when they created our constitutional order, that they certainly did not want an established national church, but in no way, shape, or form did they want the strict separation between church and state. And so I think a lot of people heard this argument and said, yeah, that sounds right to me. And so what I've attempted to do in in the talk, I I make those arguments. In the book, I I make them again, but I document them in detail, such that I think any fair-minded person who reads this book will come away convinced. And so I think for Christian conservatives, it gives them the tools to defend the, the positions that they, they feel intuitively are correct. Um, hopefully for the skeptic, it will convince them that, in fact, America did not have a, a godless constitution, that founders did not want the strict separation of church and state, but that America did, in fact, have a Christian founding. Mark, in the book, you say that your goal was to distill 30 years of scholarly work on Christianity's role in the American founding into an accessible resource for the average reader. Uh, What does all that mean? Can you expand on that? Yes, I've been a professor for about 25 years or so. I've done a dozen academic books with Oxford University Press, Cambridge University Press, University of Notre Dame, and these are good books, and I'm proud of them. The problem is they're only read by other scholars. Mm. And so what I've, what I've attempted to do in this book is write for the general reading public. And I, I, I'm not looking down on, on people. I know that you know most people aren't academic historians or academic PhDs in politics and that sort of thing. And so this book is intended for you know the regular person, the, the person with a high school degree, a college degree, who's interested in American history, uh, but perhaps doesn't want to take the time to read through dozens and dozens of scholarly books. Um, this is a very accessible book, and I think it, um, it, it's been selling well, and it should be widely read. Mark, when did academics and popular authors begin asserting that America's founders were deists who desired to separate church and state, and, and what motivated them to make such claims? 
You know, there were a few authors in the 19th century who made these claims, but primarily it's a 20th century phenomenon. Mm. I think uh, a couple of things are going on. First of all, you, you begin to have academics who completely divorce their um, academic work from their faith, if they have any faith at all. <clears throat> and so they're perhaps drawn naturally to a founder like Thomas Jefferson, who is um, perhaps a Christian of sorts, but definitely not an Orthodox Christian, and definitely far more influenced by the Enlightenment than most founders. And so someone like that seems to be a modern man that can be celebrated, as opposed to many founders who are clearly people of faith, who you know modern academics might look at as you know somewhat you know too conservative, too religious, too old school. I think as well that there are some real life consequences with respect to law and public policy. In 1947, the U.S. Supreme Court said we absolutely must interpret the First Amendment in light of the Founders' views, particularly the religion clauses. Congress shall make no law respecting the establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. But they went on to say that America's founders wanted the strict separation of church and state, and therefore we cannot have things like prayer in public schools, Bible reading in public schools, and that sort of thing. And I think what you had there was a set of jurists who wanted a particular outcome, and they went back to the American founding. They cherry-picked the very few documents that seemed to suggest that American founders wanted the separation of church and state. And there are a few documents, but only a handful. And so that was really um, ideologically motivated, I think. And, of course, a lot of academics and popular authors desire those same sorts of outcomes. And so they continue to make these very bad historical arguments largely because they don't want things like prayer in public schools, Bible reading in public schools, uh, and, and so on. Mark David Hall is with us <clears throat> from the Portland, Oregon area. Uh, we're talking about his book, Did America Have a Christian Founding? By the way, Mark, what is a deist? What do they believe? Sure, that's a great question. So deism is a product of the Enlightenment, and basically, it says we are only going to accept religious claims that seem to us to be rational. And so certainly something like the Trinity, three and one, one and three, that doesn't seem to be rational. The Incarnation, Atonement, Virgin Birth, Miracles, these things don't make sense according to reason. So we'll throw them all out. Uh, but Deus did believe in a Creator God. They do believe in a difference between good and evil, and some of them even believe in an afterlife where people will be punished um, for evil deeds, say. Um, so deists are not completely atheist, uh, but they're certainly not Orthodox Christians. Um, in the first substantial chapter of my book, I address the claim that most of America's founders were deists. And believe it or not, scholar after scholar literally says most of America's founders were deists. I look at the evidence, and I come away with the conclusion that maybe, as the term is usually defined, maybe there's just one clear deist among America's founders, Ethan Allen. There's a couple other that are probably there in one way or the other, uh, uh, Thomas Paine and uh, Thomas Jefferson. But after you get past those three, the evidence of deism in the American founding almost completely collapses. And so it's just rather remarkable in my mind that scholar after scholar will say most of America's founders were deists, where by an accurate account of the evidence, maybe only two or three were. Are deists still around today? Do they do they meet? Do they gather? Do they have yeah. do they have meeting halls or? Yeah, I, I, I think so. Um, now it's not a major um, religious sect, but yeah, I think certainly your your current Unitarians or Universalists. Mm would be deist of sorts. Um, you know, plenty of people, you know, we of course have seen over the last decade or so the rise of the nuns, N-O-N-E-S, people who still say, yeah, I'm kind of religious, I believe in God, but I don't want traditional Christianity, so they don't go to church and that sort of thing. So there are perhaps a few deists, probably more deists today than there were in the American founding era, uh, but there's still, you know, few and far between, I would say. Thomas Jefferson famously asserted that there should be a wall of separation between church and state. So when we come back from the break, Mark, did Thomas Jefferson actually believe this? And are his views relevant for interpreting the First Amendment? And I, I also, Mark, want you to talk about the, uh, the famous Jefferson Bible where he cut out all the miracles and repasted it all into the Jefferson Bible. We 
are having a fascinating discussion with Mark David Hall. He's been at George Fox University since 2001, received a B.A. in political science from Wheaton College and a Ph.D. in government from the University of Virginia. And he has dug deeply, deeply into American political theory and the relationship between religion and politics. Uh, Stay with us. We've got more with Mark David Hall right here on the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour on the new AM 990 and FM 101.5, The Word in Orlando. We are here, folks. I'm Pat Williams. Uh, This is the Power Hour. Always glad when you join us. Uh, Mark David Hall is the author of Did America Have a Christian Founding? And, Mark, before the break, um, I mentioned all that about Thomas Jefferson. Uh, uh, So I think you can just pick it up and and, and run with it. I want to hear all about this. Sure. Well, the first thing that should be said is that Thomas Jefferson played no role in drafting the First Amendment, no role in ratifying the First Amendment. He was over in Europe at the time. And so I'm not sure why we would look to him to begin with um, to shine light on the on, on the original understanding of the First Amendment. I know why some jurors do, and that's because they desire the outcome of the separation of church and state. Jefferson famously wrote a letter to the, to the Danbury Baptist in 1802 where he did, in fact, say that the First Amendment creates a wall of separation between church and state. Again, I want to just from the um, outset say I'm not sure why this is relevant at all if we actually want to understand what the First Amendment means. Um, why did Jefferson say that? Again, I think he desired the, a, a stricter separation between church and state than did most founders. Even so, he did not act as if there was a wall of separation between church and state. As governor of Virginia, he issued a, a, a call for prayer and fasting. When he was on a committee to d- design the national seal, the seal for the United States of America, he proposed a seal that would consist of Moses stretching out his hand over the Red Sea, and the Egyptians um, chasing the Israelites across the sea, and the Red Sea collapsing in upon the Egyptians. And his model for the United States of America would have been rebellion to tyrants is obedience to God. Um, two days after, literally two days after he wrote this letter to the Danbury Baptist, he went to church services in the U.S. Capitol building, where he heard John Leland, the great Baptist itinerant minister, and himself an opponent of religious establishments preach. Jefferson also made the War Department building and the Treasury Department building available for church services, and he continued to go. And that was just a one-time event, going to church in the U.S. Capitol building. He went regularly to church in the U.S. Capitol building. And I say all of that not to suggest that Jefferson wanted a union between church and state. Again, he wanted a stricter separation than did most founders, But even Jefferson did not act as if there was a wall of separation between church and state. And when we turn from Jefferson to the rest of America's founders, we see almost no evidence, no evidence at all, that America's founders desired a strict separation between church and state. What that means is today, if we really want to follow the original understanding of the First Amendment, there is plenty of room for presidents to issue calls for prayer and fasting, for state legislatures to approve voucher programs, that parents who send their children to religious schools can participate in, and so forth. Again, there are some things that might be inappropriate um, that we would not want to do today, but at least from a constitutional perspective, um, there's lots of room for the church and state to cooperate. Mark, why are George Washington's words and actions a good indicator of our founders' thoughts on God and government? You know, I would say Washington's actions are very relevant, as are most of America's founders. Um, So let me give you one example. So I've already suggested that when we turn from Jefferson to the rest of America's founders, we see the the evidence for the the strict separation of church and state to disappear almost entirely. Let me tell you another story. So one day, literally one day after the House of Representatives approved the language that became the First Amendment, Elias Boudinot, who was serving in the House of Representatives, he made a suggestion. I want to paraphrase him, but basically he said, hey, guys, things are going well. Why don't we ask President George Washington to issue a Thanksgiving Day proclamation? Adonis Burke and Thomas Tucker said, no, 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 we can't do that. That's a European practice. Roger Sherman, the old Puritan from Connecticut, he said, no, 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 it's okay, guys. It's a biblical practice. It's worthy of Christian imitation. So the House agreed with Boudinot and Sherman 
The Senate agreed with the House. Congress asked President Washington to issue a Thanksgiving Day proclamation. And Washington didn't have to do it, but he said, okay, I will. And you can read this if you just simply Google George Washington, Thanksgiving Day Proclamation, 1789. You will see this wonderfully robust Christian call for Thanksgiving. Uh, basically urges Americans to come together to give thanks to God, the author of all that is good in the world. Um, he encourages us to repent of our national sins. Um, it's, it's just a wonderful call. And I think that story very well encapsulates my, uh, or very well represents my argument, that when you turn from a Jefferson and a Madison and a few isolated texts to the American founding founders broadly conceived, to the founding generation, to the members of the first federal Congress, to the members of the state legislatures that ratified the First Amendment, you see almost no evidence that American founders desired a strict separation of church and state. Everyone supported this idea that a president or a governor could issue a call for prayer and fasting or a Thanksgiving Day proclamation. No one thought this sort of practice was unconstitutional. Mark, I want you to talk about the current lineup of the Supreme Court. Uh, where do the justices fall regarding matters of faith in the Constitution? Yeah, fortunately, we've seen a great change over the last 30 years. So in the early 70s, America's justices, at least a majority, were routinely acting as if there was, in fact, a, a wall of separation between church and state. I think appropriately that most justices today recognize that American founders did not desire a strict separation of church and state. You certainly have a solid majority of five conservatives who never ruled this way. But even um, this last summer, we had a case involving the Blendensburg Cross, a cross in Maryland that was erected shortly after World War I to commemorate the dead from a, a particular county in Maryland. So this is a mammoth 40-foot cross. The Freedom From Religion Foundation said this cannot stand. The wall of separation prohibits such a cross from being on public land. It has to be moved or it has to be decapitated. Now, we're talking about a massive 40-foot concrete cross. There's no way this could be moved. Um, the best you could maybe do is decapitate it, somehow destroy it. But fortunately, the U.S. Supreme Court, by a vote of 7-2, to two, said, in fact, the, the, the Establishment Clause does not require crosses to be removed from public land, monuments of the Ten Commandments to be removed from public land, the words in God we trust, which are, of course, um, engraven in the U.S. House of Representatives chamber. These things do not have to be removed. Um, the, the, the First Amendment does not, in fact, require religion to be scrubbed clean from the public square. Again, absolutely appropriate um, from a constitutional perspective. We do not have to go around renaming the city of Philadelphia or Los Angeles. It's just a ridiculous proposition that the Establishment Clause prohibits these sorts of things. Let me, let me hasten to say the Establishment Clause does prohibit something. It prohibits a national church, and by extension now the state church, uh, a state church. So it would be inappropriate, it would be unconstitutional for, for Florida, for instance, to declare the Southern Baptist Church to, to be the official church of, of Florida. Um, this is prohibited. But other than that sort of thing, almost nothing is prohibited by the Establishment Clause. Now, Mark, I want you to answer this question. Why should concerns for religious liberty inform our voting choices? Oh, that's a great question. So America's founders were, were to a person, as far as I'm aware, convinced that religious liberty is a very important right, that it must be robustly protected. Now, in the American founding, and I think today almost no one says um, we should pass a law saying something like it will be illegal to be a Southern Baptist, or it will be illegal to baptize children, or it will be illegal to baptize adults. Almost no one's advocating for that. I, mean, I wouldn't even say no one's advocating for that. So the real problem we run into is when you have general, neutrally applicable laws, a law that says something like all males must serve in the military, now, a law like that is not problematic for many people, but of course there are some religious pacifists out there, some Quakers, some Mennonites, some Moravians, who say we cannot serve in the military. It's a violation of our religious convictions. We believe Jesus when he says, um, love your enemy, turn the other cheek, and they interpret those sorts of verses in Matthew 5 and elsewhere to require them to be um, pacifists. 
So what do we do with people like that? Well, America's founders had a good answer. They said, we're going to create exemptions for them. So we'll draft all people to serve in the military, or at least potentially draft all people. But when it comes to religious pacifists, we'll permit them to serve their country in other ways, in nonviolent ways, or perhaps to hire a substitute or something like that. And so these are called religious exemptions or religious accommodations. Now today, if we can fast forward all the way to, to, to today, again, threats to religious liberty generally don't come from laws specifically targeting religious people. What they come from are general neutrally applicable laws. So, for instance, the great state of Oregon had a law that said, and I'm going to paraphrase it, but basically that no state employee may use narcotics. Well, again, that's generally a reasonable law that's not problematic, but it did cause problems for some Native Americans. Um, Native Americans who believed that they had to use peyote, which is, in fact, a narcotic in certain religious ceremonies. And so what do we do with these sorts of people? One answer would be to say the law is the law, and too bad for these Native Americans. Oregon initially took this this position. Um, This case went to the U.S. Supreme Court, and unfortunately the U.S. Supreme Court said the First Amendment does not protect these Native Americans. Well, that's an unfortunate um, outcome from my perspective, but fortunately Oregon very rapidly amended its legislation to say, okay, no one's allowed to use narcotics except for Native Americans in these religious ceremonies. Um, So that, I think, is is a sort of appropriate religious accommodation. So where is this relevant to more people? Well, in about half of the states, it's illegal to discriminate on the basis of sexual orientation. As you know, there are plenty of, not plenty, there are some Christians who believe that their religious convictions do not allow them to participate in the same-sex wedding ceremony. And so you have a Jack Phillips in, in Colorado, for instance, who says, look, I will make bakery products. I will make cakes and cookies and pies for any people, you know, I, I'm not going to discriminate on the basis of race or gender or sexual orientation, but I cannot, as a matter of religious conviction, participate in the same-sex wedding ceremony. I cannot create a custom cake to celebrate a, a marriage between two men or between two women. So what do we do with a person like Jack Phillips? What I would contend, and what I believe America Sanders would say, is while we don't necessarily have to remove this law banning discrimination on the basis of sexual orientation, what we can do instead is to create a, a, a religious accommodation. We are going to permit a Jack Phillips to run his bakery according to his religious convictions, and um, we will not force him to participate in a same-sex wedding ceremony. That seems to me to be a very sensible accommodation, and yet, as we can tell from when these, when these sorts of accommodations are proposed in Oregon or Colorado or Kentucky or elsewhere, a virtual firestorm erupts. And so one of the things I hope is that people who read my book will come away saying, hey, religious liberty is very important, and we can protect it, and we don't have to force people like Jack Phillips to act against his religious convictions. Mark David Hall has uh, authored the book, Did America Have a Christian Founding? Uh, Mark, I must ask you this. Uh, You have enormous passion for this topic. That's obvious. Uh, where did that passion come from? You know, that's a great question. I um, Ever since I was in high school, I was interested in questions of religious liberty. As a young man, I had the opportunity to um, intern at the Christian Legal Society, one of the first Christian legal advocacy, advocacy groups that fights for religious liberty. Since then, I've had the opportunity to work for the Alliance Defending Freedom, First Liberty, and organizations like that. And one of the things I do um, do suggest in the conclusion of my book is that these are organizations that are worthy of our support today. Um, they are on the front line fighting for religious liberty. And I know a lot of us don't have extra money that we can just give away willy-nilly, but to the extent to which, after we support our churches and local um, charities, if we have additional money, we should consider supporting organizations like these because they're doing God's work. What do you want people to take from our chat? Um, well, of course, the big takeaway is that America had a Christian founding and that this is very good news for all Americans. Um, we haven't really gotten into it, but one of the arguments I make is that America's founders were influenced by their Christian convictions when they created the Constitution. Um, the Constitution is a, is a profoundly Christian document. It's 
Um, Its authors assume that humans are sinful, that humans are created in the image of God, and therefore they designed a constitutional order that allows the people to participate, but that prohibits concentrated power, so we have separation of powers, checks and balances, and this sort of thing. Um, And this constitutional order has served all Americans well, not just Christians. It served Jews and Sikhs and Muslims and atheists very well, and therefore it's something that should be defended and protected today. My guest... Mark David Hall, author of Did America Have a Christian Founding? We've got more after this. Stay with us here on the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour on the new AM 990 and FM 101.5, The Word, in Orlando. Dr. Mark David Hall, our guest in that first segment, talking about his book, Did America Have a Christian Founding? Greg Kokel joins us. He's in the L.A. area. His new book is out with Zondervan. It's called Tactics, a game plan for discussing your Christian convictions. And by the way, uh, this is the 10th anniversary edition. Congratulations on that, Greg. I'm glad we can chat. Yeah, so am I, Pat. And I'm really excited about this edition. It isn't just a commemoration of 10 years of uh, of doing really well with folks, uh, but it's rather a, a totally rewrite I totally right. It's totally updated. Uh, I have doubled the number of tactics basically in it. I have 40% new material. I mean, this is a, in, almost a brand new book. So some of your listeners who may already have had the first edition from 10 years ago, there is so much more in this uh, second edition, 10th anniversary edition. I just wanted to make sure they understood that. A uh, game plan for discussing your Christian convictions. Right. Uh, let me start with five specific areas that I want you to expand on for us, Greg. Okay. Number one, initiating conversations effortlessly. Why is that so hard for us? Well, um, there's a couple of reasons. I, I pause for a moment there because every, just about every one of your listeners knows that, first of all, it's important to engage people about, about Christ because they need him. Secondly, they know in under normal circumstances that's a little bit discomforting. You know, how do you do that? How do you talk with you, especially about controversial issues? You know, they say never talk about politics and religion, you know, but uh, this is one of the uh, verboten topics, right, because it causes trouble. Thirdly, boy, it's a whole lot more difficult in this uh, period of time than it ever was before because there's so much public hostility to not just Christ and the cross, which that's always been the case, uh, Pat, but to the entire worldview. And so everything about Christianity is being challenged. The authority of the Bible, the existence of God, the existence of Jesus himself, or at least as the person who the Bible characterizes, what it means to be human, what it means to be a man or a woman, male or female, even what the notion of truth means. So this creates an atmosphere out there that is is really, really challenging. And so one of the reasons I think that the book is so helpful is that it gives Christians an opportunity, or not just an opportunity, but a way, a means, a plan uh, that they can follow step-by-step that will allow them to get into conversations in an amicable way uh, where there's not a lot of pressure on them. Uh, It's kind of like going into the shallow end of the pool is the way I, I like to explain it, Pat. So we people are, are just are uncomfortable Christians, even though they know they ought to engage more often. They just don't know how. There's one other thing, too, Pat, and that is there are maybe a lot of your listeners who do, say, read up on things that have to do with answering questions or defending the faith or understanding the worldview, etc., to go to conferences or listen to podcasts or whatever. There's lots of good stuff out there. It's amazing. The problem is there's a missing bridge. And that's a bridge from the content to the conversation, or a bridge, say, from the scholarship to the relationship. And that's where tactics comes in. It provides that missing bridge. Greg Kokel, our guest, his book called Tactics is out. Here's the second topic for you, Greg. You say present the truth clearly, cleverly, and persuasively. I want to hear about this. 
Well, that's a process, obviously. That's a kind of a description that goes with the book, so that when you have a uh, a game plan, in other words, you have a way to maneuver through conversations, and you have some tactical tools in your toolbox that allow you to see when people have made mistakes, when people are thinking in an unsound way. Like, for example, when people say, well, you know, so there's no right or wrong. There's no, uh, there's no absolute morality. You Christians are always trying to push your views on other people. Um, you know, they're, they're, you shouldn't be doing that. Okay, some of your listeners might have recognized that built in that comment is a massive contradiction. On the one hand, they say, you sh- uh, there is no morality. There is no objective. There's no right or wrong. And then they say, you should not be doing what you're doing. Well, that presumes that what they're doing is wrong, so apparently there is a right and wrong. It's like saying there are no right and wrong rules for us to live by. Here's one of them, (laughs) you know. Mm -hmm. And um, so this is a, I call that the suicide tactic. Now, that's not the whole conversation, obviously, but I'm just giving, maneuvering in that conversation takes some other steps. But the point I'm making is this, when you have some of the tactical tools in your toolbox, you are able to see some of these mistakes. Well, how do you maneuver then? Well, the game plan is based on a, on a one particular tactic. Uh, it, it, it has a name that some people are still familiar with, and the name of the tactic is Columbo. And if you recall, Lieutenant Columbo from TV fame many years ago would solve his crimes by kind of coming in under the radar and seeming innocuous, but by asking questions, by gathering information, asking questions, and then maneuvering towards who he thought was guilty by still asking questions. And so we build a game plan around a very particular way of asking questions that allows you to kind of come in innocuously, in a relaxed fashion, in a way that's not going to upset other people, in a way that you're not doing hardly any of the work, and in fact, um, you're not even doing most of the talking. And, especially initially, you're not putting your own cards on the table. And that's one of the things that keeps the Christians safe. But eventually, as you maneuver through these conversations, and I give lots and lots of illustrations of them in the book, you realize that it's possible to end up making your point in a pretty powerful way, even though you're not arguing with somebody or you're not in a straightforward, direct way saying, well, you're wrong and I'm right, because that's fighting words, basically. Mm-hmm. Instead, you can use the questions that we suggest, and there's actually three steps to the game plan, and for the first two steps, there are model questions. You use those, and then there's a lot of listening going on because you're drawing the other person out. Now, by the way, Pat, you know that when you draw the other person out, a couple things are going on. First of all, you are showing interest in that other person's point of view, all right, and that's great, and that's polite, that's nice. Uh, secondly, um, they're, they're doing all the work, <laughs> <laughs> like in this conversation, that you just asked me a couple questions and I'm doing the talking, right? Mm-hmm. But here's the third thing that's really important. You are the one, Pat, in this conversation who's in the driver's seat. And you're in the driver's seat because of the questions you're asking me. And the same thing works out in the conversation with Christians, uh, with non-Christians, rather. Instead of just jumping in and getting combative and getting into arguments about a whole bunch of volatile issues, we start drawing people out in a very particular kind of way and let them do the talking. We're, we're not uh, under pressure. Um, and they're actually not under pressure either because they don't mind talking about their own views. Lots of times we're asking for clarification of their views. But we're just biding our time and looking for an opening, and I teach how to do that in the book, so that the end result of these is a genial, relaxed interaction where you can make the other your point clear eventually and you can also demonstrate how the other person's point of view has kind of gone a little south and you do that by using the various tactics that are in the book so at this point greg we have covered 
two issues. Initiate conversations effortlessly. Present the truth clearly, cleverly, and persuasively. Now, I'm eager to hear about this one. Graciously and effectively expose faulty thinking. How do we do that, Greg? Well, this is one, uh, I've already touched on this a little bit, I don't go in more detail, and, and the way that we do it graciously is that we're friendly in the process, okay? Mm-hmm. And uh, when, you, when a person's in the process of asking questions, drawing a person out, understanding what their point of view is, then, uh, then that's just a friendly atmosphere to begin with. So, uh, and then when you're listening and you and you know what to look for, and this is a key part of the book. It really is. The book is in two sections. The first is the game plan, and that's where Columbo comes in asking the questions. The second one is fi- is called titled "Finding the Flaws." So here, here, I'll just give you an example of a conversation I had, and it's in the book. Um, I I. Uh, I was getting some physical therapy done on my back, and, and uh, we, I was, I'm asking the other person about his views. He asked me what I do for a living. Pretty soon we're involved in this. We're just having a friendly conversation. And he starts asking for my views about some controversial issues. In this case, he asked about homosexuality. So I just straightforward gave him the biblical take on it, you know. And then he said, well, see, you know, you Christians are nice people, but pretty soon you start getting judgmental, mm. he said. Now, a lot of Christians have heard this, and this is now this is a, a, a kind of an attack. Oh, now what? Now I'm in a tough spot. But I asked him a question just to get clarification. I knew where he was coming from. I knew where he was going, but I just wanted to get clarification. So I said, Gil, what's wrong with that? And he said, it's wrong to judge. Now, notice that when I asked the simple question of clarification to get, to get more detail on his view, he stated explicitly something that was crystal clear. So I'm not going to misunderstand his point. And, of course, there's nothing – people hear it all the time. It's wrong to judge. Okay, great. And, but then I said – now, I just want your listeners to see something. When he says that it's wrong to judge, a lot of your listeners are going to say, well, wait a minute. That itself is a judgment. You're judging, and you shouldn't be judging. But what is that – your judging business. Well, that's a judgment on the Christian. Okay. So he's, it turns out he's doing the very same thing that he's telling the Christian not to do. And by the way, this happens all the time in a whole bunch of different areas. When somebody says, well, you're intolerant. And I say, well, what do you mean by that? Well, you think you're right and everybody else is wrong. Well, the, the person who's making the charge thinks that he's right and the Christian is wrong. It's only the Christian getting called a name here. So this kind of thing happens all the time. And once I asked that clarification of question of Gill to kind of get him to state in a bold way, okay, judging is wrong, now I'm set up for another question. See, I see the problem in what he's, what he's saying, and I could just point it out baldly and inelegantly, well, Gill, you're judging me, so there. You know, and now you just got a head-to-head thing. Instead, I used the question. And I said, Gill, if it's wrong to judge then why are you judging me right now? Notice that's in the question. When you ask a question, you toss the ball back into the other's court. And I'm telling you, this stopped Gil absolutely flat in his tracks. He had no idea what just happened, mm. although it was a completely legitimate question. And he's scratching his chin and he's mumbling to himself, trying to figure out how to get out of this. And he makes a couple of false starts, you know. Oh, actually, what he said next is, okay, I guess it's okay to judge as long as you don't push your morality on someone else. Now, he thought he'd improved his lot there. Well, I asked him another question. I said, Gil, is that your morality? Is that your moral point of view that it's wrong to push your morality on other people? And he said, yes, it is. And so then I asked him, then why are you pushing it on me right now? because he was doing the same thing once again. And pretty soon he got all flustered. He said, well, he made a couple false starts and he couldn't get going. And, uh, and he said, well, it's not fair. <laughs> I said, what do you mean it's not fair? Uh, I said, he said, I can't find a way to say it that it sounds right. I said, well, you can't find a, say, a way to say that that it sounds right because it's not right. You're doing what you're telling me not to do. Now, notice I'm chuckling a little bit here because it's funny when people get into a a bind like that with their own views, and you can see it, and you can and exploit it. 
in a friendly way, and that's the way I act. When you're, I'm not, you know, poking him in the eye. You know, I'm not make trying to make him look stupid or anything. I'm just trying to show him. Wait a minute, help me out here. And when I ask the question, it takes a lot of the the edge off of it. So it continues to be a friendly conversation. And so the, the game plan, Pat. Let me. I'll sum this particular point up here. The game plan taken as a whole is a plan that allows you to, uh, you know, in a very friendly way, engage people because nothing's on the line. You're just being friendly. You're asking questions, and you're trying to understand another person's point of view. As you do this, you're asking questions like, what do you mean by that? Or, or maybe, well, okay, I, get, I understand your view now. Can you tell me how you came to that conclusion or what your reasons are for that? Uh, and again, just gathering more information. And what this then creates is an atmosphere where now you're able to maybe see some flaws and ask questions about the flaws, like I just illustrated, or the other person is going to be able to see that they don't really have a very clear picture of their own ideas, and when they're forced to explain them a little bit, they start sounding silly. My guest, and boy, he's a good one, Greg Kokel. The book, Tactics. We've got more after this on the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour. It's the new AM 990 and FM 101.5, The Word. We'll be right back with Greg Kokel. Stay with us. Greg Kokel is our guest. His book is called Tactics. Greg, we've covered the first three issues here. Uh, Initiate conversations effortlessly. Present the truth clearly, cleverly, and persuasively, graciously and effectively expose faulty thinking. Now, here's the fourth topic I want you to get into. Skillfully manage the details of dialogue. Uh, What does that mean? What's that about? Well, again, these are kind of all a a bit related. And um, when I think that what Christians have in their minds, Pat, is an idea that the goal of a conversation is to just get the gospel into the conversation and hopefully maneuver so you can uh, challenge somebody to receive Christ. Now, obviously, the goal long-term is to is to uh, help a person uh, receive Christ, okay? Uh, but but short-term, there's a little aphorism or a saying that I find really helpful, and that is, before there can be any harvest— and that would be the person becoming Christian. Before there can be any harvest, there always has to be a season of gardening, okay? And so, uh, you know, a lot of people don't think of this because our evangelism techniques are all harvest-oriented. Let's get them to pray. But what about, you know, the tilling and the spade work and the planting of the seed and the tending to the seed, all of the watering and weeding and all those things? that, frankly, are, are necessary in every single person's life before they become a follower of Jesus. happened in my life, and almost everybody who doesn't, wasn't raised completely in a Christian home, they have this process that they have to go through. And so if we want to maneuver um, in conversations in a friendly way and expose bad thinking and help them to see, in a certain sense, the error of their way, we have to be committed to the idea that this is a longer-term process. And frankly, it's longer now than it ever has been. Uh, I became a Christian during the Jesus movement back in the 70s, you know. Boy, that was easy. Sometimes just go out and give the simple gospel, bang, you know, people would trust the Lord. But now you've got so many other issues that are involved, it's so much more difficult to maneuver in conversations. Uh, to to be able to kind of maneuver in a safe fashion. And so this is why the book teaches a lot of very relaxed conversational techniques um, specifically revolved around asking questions, as I've emphasized, because it's so critical that we learn to do that. Instead of being in preaching mode, we want to be more in student mode, just like Columbo. And I think what a lot of people don't understand is they they don't realize that if they stay in student mode, they're going to be gathering more information that's going to really be a big help for them 
to know how to proceed next, or even if to proceed next. I mean, sometimes every every conversation, in my view, is not a divine appointment. But we can probe the water. We can conduct ourselves with wisdom towards outsiders, making the most of the opportunity. That's what Paul says in Colossians 4. And then we can go from there and, and just see. If there's opportunity, then we draw a person out more often. We can we can take some of the techniques that we that are in the book, and like I said, all of them have all kinds of illustrations of real life circumstances that I have uh, that have happened to me, where I've taken these and in a very effective way taken this simple uh, tactic and used it in order to get the other person thinking. And by the way, this is another thing in the book that's very important, Pat, but it is a little bit controversial to some people. I made a reference a few moments ago about you don't have to get to the gospel, you know, in every conversation. Well, this freaks some people out because they think, well, wait a minute, what the heck is evangelizing then if it's not getting to the gospel? And uh, and part of my point is that this is a process of getting there in which there's a whole team that's involved. The team is the body of Christ. You know, Jesus said in John chapter 4 to the disciples who came to, 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 to him after he talked at the woman at the well. And he said to him, you are about to reap where you did not sow, because the saying is true that some sow and others reap. And in that case, he was identifying one field, and in that situation it was Sychar. But he was, he was uh, identifying two seasons and two kinds of workers, the season of sowing and the season of reaping, and those who sow and those who reap. I, I, call, it, I call it harvesting and gardening, you know, because it's a more common term. So I think most of us are gardeners. And uh, when we go out, we're just, uh, I'm encouraging people just to think about doing a little bit, not trying to do the whole thing. Depend on the rest of the team led by the, by the team leader, by the coach, which is God himself. And so, Pat, when I go out in a circumstance um, to engage, when I, when I am in a circumstance that I hope that might have a spiritual impact, my goal in that moment is not to lead that person to Christ, my goal is simply to, as I put it in the book, to put a stone in their shoe, <laughs> all right? If you ever have a stone in your shoe, you know, oh, that's a little bit uncomfortable. You know, it's not the end of the world, but it still annoys you a little bit. You're thinking about it all the time, unless you deal with it. And that's when I speak to non-Christian audiences, which I do a lot. I've spoken to more than 80 college and university campuses. I tell them, I say, look, I'm not here to convert you today. I just want to put a stone in your shoe, is what I say. I just want to, I tell them, I just want to annoy you, but in a good way, you know, and they all start laughing because they expect the Christian to annoy them, but uh, I tell them, okay, I'm your man, but um, but I think you're going to thank me in the end because I want to get you thinking about something worth thinking about, and that is Jesus of Nazareth. My guest, Greg Kokel, and Greg, we've arrived at the fifth issue here that I want you to explain. Okay. Um, you say maintain an engaging, disarming style, even under attack. Yeah. Uh, explain that to us. Well, um, to maintain your cool mm. when you're under attack is not always easy to do. And again, it's kind of a learned skill. But it's a lot easy to learn it if you have some tools to deal with it. So it, let's just, I mean, going, going back to um, um, somebody who's belligerent, all right, they say, well, you're for, you should be forcing your views on other people. And so uh, then I ask the question immediately, what do you mean by that? Well, th- that's our first question, our first game plan question. And it can be used in a variety of different ways in a bunch of circumstances. So now you have a little bit of a... Uh, tense situation, so I'm asking calmly, not defensively, exactly how am I forcing my views on you right now? Okay? Now, when I do that, the ball goes into the other court. That means I stop talking. If you ever notice that when you get into an argument with somebody, you disagree with somebody, and you start talking, the more talking you do, the more uh, more elevated 
uh, the intensity gets, right? Mm-hmm. It gets ramped up and ramped up. But if you, if the Christian doesn't enter into that, it doesn't get on that crazy treadmill, instead asks a question for clarification, well, exactly how am I forcing my view on you? Then the ball goes in their court, and I can keep my cool. All right? I'm listening because I want to see what they're going to say. If they say, well, God, you know, there is no God. Believe in God is irrational. Okay, now the Christian's under pressure. Okay, how can I show that belief in God is rational? I don't know if I have the arguments for that. I don't know. I don't remember what that philosopher guy said. I read the book, but I forgot. You know, well, you don't have to worry about that. Instead, you can ask a question. And by the way, when we don't know the answer to something, how that's when we oftentimes will get belligerent. We'll start amping it up and start getting into a fight, and we substitute belligerence for substance. But instead of doing that, we could just say, well, what exactly is irrational about believing in God? They made the claim, I'm asking for clarification. In both cases, the person says, well, you, you know, you're... You're, uh, you know, you're intolerant, or you're you're narrow-minded, or you're, you know, calling me a name. Well, then I ask for clarification for that. That takes the pressure off of me, and so I don't get angry so quickly, and it puts the pressure on them. Now, it doesn't push the pressure on them to make them mad, because all I'm asking is for more clarification. If he says that they say, well, he believes the guys are irrational. Say, really, what what's irrational about it? Or science of, you guys are in the dark ages, science has proved there is no God. Oh, really? Um, how, how has it done that? <laughs> Just a simple question. What has science demonstrated that shows there is no God? Actually, I know it's just the opposite, that the more science discovers, the more evidence for God uh, we find. My guest, Greg Kokel, the book Tactics. Thanks so much for joining us. we got to wrap up right after uh, these messages on the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour on the new AM 990 and FM 101.5 The Word in Orlando. Thanks for joining us here on the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour. Mark David Hall, our guest in that first segment, uh, talking about his book, Did America Have a Christian Founding? And then... Uh, Greg Kokel joined us <coughs> from the Los Angeles area, and we talked about his book, simply called Tactics. Well, we're trying to bring Major League Baseball to Orlando, and if you would go up to the website, orlandodreamers.com, orlandodreamers.com, and just express your interest, or your interest perhaps in a in a season ticket plan. We're trying to impress Major League Baseball and all the owners of teams and the commissioner that Orlando can be a special site for a Major League Ball Club. Thanks for doing that. A very happy New Year to you. And we're back next weekend for more on the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour. And you're listening to the new AM 990 and FM 101.5, The Word, in Orlando. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.